Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Today's interview is with Vincent Dillard. Vincent is the Director of Global Macro Strategy at Stonex. He joins the show to discuss the shortcoming of the 60-40 equity bond portfolio, the eight horsemen of inflation, and how to position an investor's portfolio accordingly. Whoa. The 60-40 portfolio has been an industry standard for asset allocators for many, many years, decades, with bonds yielding near zero and equities at all times high, things may change for this gold standard allocation. Things are changing. We talk about the growing wealth gap, the boomer CPI figure and its associated inflation, a fascinating discussion on where we are now and what the world might look like in the not so distant future. Before you listen, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or even better, leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast and helps keep this thing going. It really helps. We try to liven it up and stay positive, but sometimes as finance people, especially in this unprecedented times, it's tough to stay positive. Stay focused on the important things in life, and we'll make it through this. But first, listen to this episode and enjoy this conversation with Vincent Delore. Vincent, I am very excited to have you on today. Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I listened to your podcast on Macro Voices and read your article on FT, and you, you've got a lot of really great ideas. I, I wanted to start off, for my listeners that maybe don't know a lot about you and what you do, can you start off with your background, who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm the global macro strategist for StoneX, formerly known as INTL FC Stone. StoneX is a global financial service firm, about it's Fortune 100 companies, and I work within the broker-deal division, and I advise institutional investors, mostly pension funds, so kind of a long-term view on asset allocation, country selection, and global macro topics. We do research reports where I try to think of ways that not everyone has thought about when it comes to the market which is hard because a lot of people are, a lot of smart people are trying to write about the market. So it's a, it's a quite area. And occasionally I come up with a good idea and occasionally I don't. Absolutely. I think you win, you win the crown for the best clickbaity sort of title with this, the nuclear winter of the 60-40 portfolio. I've been hearing about this for a while, you know, the 60-40 portfolio is dead and this was the gold standard for investing investment allocations really the gold standard. Walk me through your thoughts here, what you meant by the nuclear winter of the 60-40 portfolio. Well, maybe let, let me start with, with where we have been. And really, the 40 portfolio has been a really an amazing creature uh, for, for you know most of the past 40 years. I mean, there was a bad decade in the 70s, but outside of that, you could even go, I would say since the end of the Great Depression, if you had a long enough time horizon, kind of the, the Siegel argument, you know, stocks on long term, you know, if you just, you know, you're just looking to retire, you could basically go passive and, you know, invest 60% in stock, 40% bonds, and, and be reasonably confident that you'd get an 8 to 9% real return over any trading 10-year period. And this is indeed what a 60-40 portfolio has delivered over the past decade. For the year... 
I think we're up about six to seven percent on a 60-40 portfolio, which you know you think is two more, two, 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 three more months, maybe we'll get there. I mean, it's just a normal year, right? Which, if you think about the insanity of you know everything that happened this year, from you know the VIX breaking a new record, from oil prices going negative, COVID, the biggest you know GDP drop ever recorded, and still, I think yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good year. Now, the problem is because it has been so successful, it has become really a, kind of an established framework for, for asset allocation. People just input, you know, past return in their capital market expectation, and you end up with a situation like the one we have today where the median pension plan in the U.S. assumes that, you know, he will get about 7.5% return on a portfolio of assets whose yield is less than 4%. <laughs> All of them, if you, whatever you mix, you know, between high yield bonds, corporate debt, even equities, you know, you get less than 4%. And then you're trying to, you know, mix these pieces and somehow get to eight. Uh, so at this point, you are really just fighting against math. And then the conclusion that I get is that it is mathematically impossible for a 60-40 portfolio to deliver the kind of return that we have been accustomed to. And I would go even further and argue that it is very likely that over the next decade, a 60-40 portfolio will post negative real return, meaning returns adjusted for inflation, something that has not happened in history outside the 70s. Yeah, which is a, a very negative thing for the economy. I mean, these pensions are underwater already. So if they're not hitting their benchmark rates of seven and a half plus percent return, things get pretty ugly pretty quickly. Walk me through some of the rationale on why this 60-40 portfolio just doesn't work anymore. Right. So, you know, I mean, I think it helps to kind of break down in very simple terms, you know. It might be too obvious for some of your listeners, but if you have stocks and bonds, there are four ways you can make money. You can get your coupons from the bond, you can get your dividend from the stock, and you can get capital gains on each of these investments, right? And if you look, you know, historically, like for example, in the 80s, all four engines, if you will, contributed almost equally. So your returns came, you know, maybe little, you know, bond, coupons, stock dividends, and then capital gains. And then progressively as time passed, uh, the 60-40 portfolio really just became a equity portfolio. It's really the, the contribution of, of, of dividends and, and, and bonds as, as yields have fallen and uh, sorry, coupons as yields have fallen, so on to close to zero. So yes, I started with this observation that, you know, we're uh, you know, up 7% for the year, we're up, you know, 9% for the decade, but it's a very different 9% in composition from what you had even in the 90s. About 90% of the return of your 60 portfolio for the past decade has come from appreciation of stock prices. And then we can dig a little further into this appreciation of stock prices. One way I like to think about stocks, and I wish I could write that down, but bear with me. I like to think of the price of a stock as the product of sales times margins times multiple. So I mean, if you, if you spread it out, it's S times E divided by S times P divided by E. So the, the, the E's and the S cancel out, but it kind of breaks down the, the three possible drivers of you know, why, why would a stock go up? Either because its revenues are going up, either because its margins getting better, or either because investors are paying more for it. And if we break it down that way, we see that obviously the first term of the equation, S, which is effectively nominal growth, has been relatively okay, I guess, in the US compared to other parts of the world, but 
still quite mediocre by historical standard. I mean, we, you know, we, we haven't gone back to the um, 5-6% nominal growth that used to be the norm before the EOA crisis. Uh, so it's still a little weak there. Margins was a big story coming out of 08. Uh, we had fantastic margin expansion from 2010 to 2015, but this is peaked about five years ago. I mean, the index is a little skewed because of the, and I'll go back to, I'm sure, the huge weight of the, the, the FANG and Microsoft stocks. But outside of these big software companies that do have structurally better margin than the rest of the industry, we've seen a steady decline, steady erosion in margin since 2015. So this is, this is an engine that also has stopped working. And that really leaves you with the third engine, which is multiple expansion. And certainly we've seen a lot of that. I mean, uh, we trade at 26 times forward earnings, which is even higher than uh, what we're in the internet bubble. Now, if we keep going even, keep digging deeper, let's look where that multiple expansion has come. And we see that this is incredibly concentrated in a handful of large tech growth stocks. Uh, so we have the most concentrated market in history with the top largest stocks, account for 25% of the index. And if you just do a, a weighted average multiple, so it's Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, and, and Alphabet, Google, you get to, I think it would be about 45 versus 12, uh, sorry, no, 16 in 2012. So you know, we're going to be of 16 to, to 45. And of course, the weight in the index has grown tremendously to the point now that I think these five stocks are larger than the industrial, energy, financial, and material sectors combined. They are larger than the FTSE 100 index, which is all London listed companies. And they are larger than the Russell 2000 index. And last that, they are larger um, than uh, the, the entire market as of uh, March 3, 2009, when, when the market Bottom. Just fascinating, these metrics, right? I mean, who in their right mind is putting money? I, I mean, I guess it begs the, this time it's different. They're tech companies. They control all of this growth. They've, there's unlimited upside because they're just going to continue being a juggernaut right. and growing, right? But and if I will, I, I'd like to jump on that because that, that is indeed the argument, right? I think it's one of the flaws, I think the value guys, which is like, oh, it's too expensive, right? It's always, everything's always too expensive. Like value people are, you know, like... Uh, stingy guy who like keeper in my day you know well you know then the correct answer is like well what are you pricing it you know if you have the growth it doesn't matter if you can go into your valuations you know a p of a hundred for a high growth company there's nothing wrong with that and you can even make the case for example that in 2000 it happened you know you know stocks internet stocks look like massively overrated. some of them were worthless but if you think of the, the one that actually survives like microsoft if you had bought Microsoft at the peak in 2000, you see a tremendous return over the next decade. Like the, the, the event that the market was pricing in the 90s eventually happened, just happened longer, took longer than they thought, but eventually Microsoft was able to grow into its valuation. And I think that's the important concept here that I want to say. Can they grow into their valuations? Who is that like to kind of reverse engineer your discounted cash flow models? How long of a high growth period do you need for these companies to quote unquote grow in the valuation. So one exercise I did on, on the big tech stock is I assumed that you know over the next N years, and we're gonna solve for N, especially when they are 25% of the stock market. I mean, if we really think that software is gonna eat the world at some point, you know, the market is gonna be them, right? So right now the, the, the price to sales ratio of the S&P 500 is around 2.6, which is again, the highest on record. I mean, a normal price to sale is more like 1.5, but again, where these very low interest rates. So I understand the argument that valuation should be higher because there is no alternative. So how long would it take, how many years of high growth would it take for these companies to converge towards that multiple of 2.6? Now let's look at a company like Microsoft, which I think is trading for about 12 times sales. 
You need to go from 12 to 2.6. And they've been growing, which is stunning for a company this size. I mean, I don't know how anyone can fathom what 18 years of growth at 12% a year when you are already either the largest or the second largest tech in the world. Not only that, but all the big tech companies we need to do so. Now, it's quite possible. To some extent, I buy the growth argument, the quality, the high return on investment, invested capital. I buy a lot of these things, but it cannot happen for all of them at the same time. <laughs> I mean, if you want to make the case that you know, it is different because these things are natural monopolies and they'll be able to maintain their margins for longer, not all of them can do that, especially when they all do essentially the same thing, you know, a mix of online ad, cloud computing, software, and, and, and entertainment. I mean, maybe one of them will lead the world. It's not possible that all five of them end up larger than the U.S. economy. So what this tells me is that the next 10, 15 years, at least from the perspective of these stocks, is going to look a lot like the 70s for a group of stock that was then called the Nifty 50s. So Nifty 50 were these, you know, great, great, great companies mostly, you know, that, that really took off in the, in the 50s and the 60s in the U.S. It was the expansion of American capitalism. It was the first wave of globalization, scientific management. So it was your IBM, your Coke, uh, Xerox, uh, Kodak. A lot of the companies are still around. And, you know, by, by the end of the 60s, you know, the, the term on Wall Street where they one decision stops, right? You can't go wrong by buying IBM. Well, they got to the kind of multiple that we are seeing today on this large tech, you know, um, north of 50, some, some even to 100 times earnings. And then you get a decade like the 70s where inflation actually increases, rates increase. And then these companies kept doing very well. They kept growing very rapidly, building these amazing empires around the world. But their multiple went from, you know, north of 60, 70 to what the market was, which by the end of the 70s was around 10 times earnings. So you had a complete lost decade from investment perspective and the business was doing very well. So that is mathematically what will happen to the large tech growth companies that dominate the index. And because they are 25% of the index, it's almost impossible for the market to rally if these guys post a decade of negative returns. Yeah. And these, the nifty 50 was such a, a sure thing at, at the time, right? It's fascinating. I'm actually reading how the internet happened, which is a recollection of how the internet has evolved from early days of Netscape all the way to iPhone. And it's, it's interesting to re-enter the, the dot-com bubble and see kind of some of the manias that were going on. Stocks, all-time highs, crazy valuations on, on pretty much all counts. But then looking at the bond portion of this as well, and knowing that there's a massive aging generation that typically hold more of their assets in bonds as they age, this, this, no wonder you describe it as a nuclear winter. I mean, it's, it's both the, the 60, the, the stocks and the 40, the bonds, that the prospects look pretty bleak over the next 10 20 years. Yeah, I started with the hardest one, which is the, the stocks part. So I still see how you can make at least a relative case for stocks. With bonds, I mean, I don't think you can make an app unless you expect like rates to go negative to like minus 5%. That's, and I, I think you'd have to be pretty crazy to expect that. I mean, it's not totally out of the question, right? I mean, I would argue that, you know, the experience of Europe and Japan are, you know, shows that one, it doesn't work. And, and two, there's the point at which you really can't go much lower than, you know, like even, for example, the Riksbank in, in Sweden, you know, they, 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 they were the pioneers in terms of negative rates of 
they started in 2014 before the ECB and they went deeper negative and then they actually had not because the economy was doing better but just because it was not working so they, they actually came back to zero so and, and I think also in the Fed because of the structure of the how the money market industry works there are I think hard limits into into how low interest rate go I think that the banking lobby also will, will not appreciate that I mean if you look at what devastation of European banks, I mean, it's so pathetic. I think the entire, the entire German bank sector is less than 20 billion in market cap at this point, which is probably less than Zoom at this point. But let, let me just explain in terms of, of math, just very simple, you know, what can happen to bonds. I mean, we have a 10-year yield, which is basically anchored at 60 basis points. It's, by the way, amazing. I mean, the market goes up, down, you have all these volatility, but the, the bond yields just like not moving since the end of the pandemic, which in a way is kind of an indication that we are already far along this process of Japanification, where, you know, you affect, I mean, not officially, but I would argue we already have your control. Anyway, so you have about 60 basis point yield. Well, you have about, you know, what's the best case scenario? If you accept my, my premise that we're not going to see negative rates in the US, it's going to zero, right? So you get 60 bits, a 10-year instrument that has a duration of, hey, let's call it 10 for easy, you know, the it's a little less, probably nine. The most you can get is going from 60 to zero times the duration, you know, 10 or nine, you get six percentage points. That is your maximal theoretical upside on, on a long US bond. That is vastly different from where we were in, in you brought up the internet bubble. 2000, you know, we had long yields, I think close to 6% at one point. I mean, the, the best trade you could have done is, you know, you sold um, the NASDAQ in March 3, 2000, and then you rolled into treasuries. Oh, my God. You know, you, you made 50% on your, on your long bond as, as, a, as a NASDAQ grow by 80. And even if you did not, even if you just had your 60-40, you know, yeah, okay, you lost about 50% on your stock position between the peak and, and, the, and the bottom, but you made about 40% of your bond. So, Matt, you were probably down 10. Now, great, but, you know, okay. Same again was true in 2008. You know, you get about a, you got about a forty percent rally in the long bond. Just the stocks drop by fifty percent. We even argue even in two thousand eighteen. You know, when we had a little pickup in yield, got us all the way up back to three point five. You know, with the convexity, you go from three point five to zero point five on the ten year. You you can make money. That option is not here. So you cannot find it by extended duration. With duration, you are getting return free risk. I mean, I think at one point, even Europe is even worse. I think a German. 30-year bond traded at a negative yield. So you take 30 years of duration and, and you're actually paying for that privilege. So duration is not a solution. Uh, credit risk, I would argue, is not a solution either. I think the, the spread on the X-Energy junk bond in the high-yield bond index in the U.S. is about 4% versus an average, historical average, 5.2%. So if you didn't know anything, you would look at that and be like, oh, economic risk in 2020 must be below average. It's a great time to buy low-grade issuers because they are safe in 2020. Well, obviously, that just sounds like a, like a joke, right? So you, you can't get it. I mean, maybe you can squeeze a little bit, I would argue, like probably if you look at emerging markets, maybe with some currency effects, so that's probably the last area where you can squeeze a little bit, but nowhere near what you need to, to, to get the kind of returns that we have. And I'll finish on the last thought, which I think is equally important but less appreciated, is I think over the next decade, you know, the, the fact that bond yields have been low is not news. Bond yields have been low for a long time, pretty much since 2009, but bonds still had a place in your portfolio because they had a very negative correlation to equity. So 
you would not necessarily buy them for the coupon or, or the income, but you bought them for, for the hedge when the market will go down. And that worked tremendously well. It was the whole risk on, risk off, right? Your long-term treasury was a risk off asset. But I think at some point over the course of the next decade, we will see that correlation wane. And again, this is a Japanification of the bond market that I'm talking about. I mean, if you look at JGBs, well, because they are anchored at, at zero, basically, or 0.1, they just don't move anymore. There are entire days when you have zero trade outside of the Bank of Japan buying JGBs. So bonds will eventually become some sort of a long-duration alternative to cash, but they will no longer provide that protection against stock losses would then allow you to leverage your portfolio because you knew you were hedged, right? So you couldn't get there just on returns, but maybe if you could leverage up and structure intelligently, which is the inside behind risk parity, you could get there with leverage. That probably at some point, I would argue in the next two to three years, that's going to go away. Bear case for equities, bear case for fixed income. Before kind of going into the alternatives or where should people look, I think the next thing I'd like to talk to you about is inflation. You have some wonderful pieces on the six horsemen of inflation, what they are and why they're here and kind of what that means. I think maybe we talk about that first and then we dive into how do investors deal with this. Give me, give me your views on inflation. So inflation is another one of these dirty words that you know, we, we can't really mention in, in, in public. Probably everybody knows about it. It's kind of like the, the death of the nuclear, the, the, the nuclear winter of the 60-40 portfolio. And anyone who understands basic math knows it's not going to happen, <laughs> uh, the, the, that we will have negative returns. Same thing with inflation. Probably everybody's privately worried about it. But you know, because we had so little inflation for so long, because anyone who's ever called for inflation looks like a fool today or is out of a job, you know, we had all these fears, oh, QE is going to be inflationary. We had a QE1, QE2, QE3. And I spent quite a bit of time looking at prior episodes of inflation, uh, Europe in the 20s, Eastern Europe uh, after the fall of communism, Latin America, uh, all across the, the 20th century. And I kind of came up with that list of actually now I have eight horsemen. I keep adding horsemen to it. Uh, so I'll just go through the list of things that usually are early signs of inflation. Uh, one is asset prices bubble. I mean, that's something you saw, for example, in Germany in the, in the 20s, before the great inflation, you know, you had soaring stock prices. Even in, in Venezuela, you know, the best performing index for many years now has been the Caracas Stock Exchange in Bolivar. <laughs> and that's, that's an important distinction, Bolivar being the, the currency of Venezuela. So asset price bubble, rapid growth in the money supply, some sort of a shock that increases the cost of doing stuff. Like you can think about the 70s, the, the auto bargo and the tripping of oil prices in 71, 73. Soaring food prices, usually around revolution as well. A large buildup in debt before inflation actually happens. Some sort of restriction of the free uh, movement of prices, whether it's government control or administered prices. Political and social unrest, a weak currency, and an ideology, what I call an inflationist ideology, where the fiscal and monetary authorities say, you know what, inflation is not a problem, it's actually a solution. Well, that list to me, is the exact description of the United States in 2020. I mean, I, we check all the boxes. Very much so. I mean, we check all of these boxes. The soaring food prices, I think, is, is contentious maybe a bit, but uh, all, a lot of the other ones. Uh, look at pork prices. I mean, it depends. I mean, okay, yeah, people say it's because of COVID, yada, yada, but look at what's happening in, for example, China. I, I look at food prices a lot in China and, and, and East Asia because, you know, they 
they are like six months ahead on the whole COVID or some of these countries never actually experienced like the kind of lockdowns we had. And the, one, the most dynamic segment of the CPI in these countries always food prices. I mean, food prices are up six, 7% year over year in China. So give it time. Yeah. Now, I'd like to dive in a bit on the political unrest, wealth inequality, because I think this is this is something that's that's very apparent. I'm out in California, there's high unemployment, and then there's, you know, the $10 million houses that somebody bought for $60,000 30 years ago. It's very in your face. Perhaps talk, I mean, that this age-adjusted CPI index that you put together or the, the minimum wage hours per S&P 500, like these are very powerful metrics, I think. Right. Let me actually start with the, uh, what I think is the, one of the major drivers of this is this chart you mentioned. So it's the ratio of the S&P 500 index to the minimum wage. And what this tells you is how many hours, days, or weeks you need to work at a minimum wage in order to buy a share in the index. And, and why it matters is because there is a generational aspect to that trade. You can think of the young generation as a generation that's rich in human capital, and poor in financial capital, unless you have a trust fund, which you're, you're from LA, so I assume you do. Uh, I'm from Indiana, I definitely don't have a trust fund. <laughs> if I do, it's very small. Most people don't, so most people must resort to the old way of making money, which is offering your labor. And, and when you are young, that labor is typically paid very low or something close to the minimum wage. So you offer your labor in order to buy financial assets, right? That's what the young people do. Now, the old people, conversely, uh, they have accumulated financial capital over their lives, hopefully, and their human capital has depleted. I mean, once you're retired, basically, you need other people to take care of you. So you need to sell assets in order to buy labor. So that ratio tells you basically how much labor the old can buy with their wealth and conversely, how much the young need to work in order to acquire assets. So in the 70s, about two weeks at the minimum wage to buy uh, one share in the index. Now it's more, now it's, I think it's about two months. So it's a four to six times increase in this relative gap. You have to work twice as hard as your parent generation in order to buy, I use stocks, but you could almost the same thing with houses. So, and, and that was, of course, going on before COVID already. I mean, this is, I think the main driver of this is, is lower interest rates. I would probably argue globalization didn't help, but primarily is lower interest rates. And then certainly fiscal and tax policy made, made things work. But, you know, that was the situation. I think COVID made that even worse because, you know, if you look at an age-adjusted impact of COVID, you know, who, who used to work at the Disney, Disneyland resorts? Who's, who are the bar, the, 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 the bartenders, the, the tattoo artists, the um, professionals, you know, the waiters, like the, yeah. it's, it's the young people, right? I mean, I think the unemployment rate among the young is close to like 30%, which is really gets us really close to where Greece is at. Conversely, for old people, I mean, if you are already retired, cool, you know, you're already staying home. I mean, all you got was a nice $1,200 check in the mail for really just living your life as you used to. So I think it, it added fuel to the fire of this uh, generational inequality. And then the, 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 the second point that you mentioned was this age-adjusted CPI, which, which I think is important to understand as well. So the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics only report one CPI, right? It's the CPIU, well, they report a bunch of them, but the one we follow is the CPIU for uh, all urban consumers. And they look at what is the average consumption basket. Well, the reality is there's no average, you know, like the, 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 the 
the average is a construct. So what I did is I tried to fix that by looking at a boomer CPI and a millennial Gen Z CPI. So if you're a boomer or let's say retirement, well, obviously healthcare is not a concern. You're eligible for Medicare, so you don't have to pay for that stuff. Hopefully you've already paid your house. Most likely you did because you bought it for 60 grand 30 years ago. So you're done with that. If anything, you have another house, you rent a, you rent a, a little room on Airbnb, so you actually benefit from, 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 from rent inflation. And these are huge, you know, healthcare, housing, these are the two, two largest ways in the CPI. And then the third one is education. Well, obviously, you're not going to go to college. I mean, you, if you have, it was 60 years ago, and you don't have any debt because it was free back then. So your consumption basket is really very deflationary. It's stuff that you can buy at Walmart and indeed because of regulation, because of China, it's gone down. It's, you know, it's the occasional cruise to Europe, the, you know, the, you know, flying to Hawaii. And there you have seen, so the old people have experienced deflation. Now, which is even better for them is social security is indexed on inflation. So the more, the more things get expensive for other people, the more money they get, even though their consumption basket is skewed towards, towards deflationary items. Now, conversely, let's, let's think about the new Gen Z millennial consumption basket. Well, you know, obviously, you know, we've all been told you have to move to major cities because, you know, nothing's happening in, in Indiana, right? So you move to New York. Well, that means you're going to spend like 30 to 40% of your wage just on rent, especially if you make minimum wage. So that's, that's a downer. Now, second, health insurance. Hey, you got you to buy. It's, you know, there's a mandate. Now, you may not consume any healthcare. You may never see a doctor because you're young, but every year you pay 10 to 15% more in healthcare premium to subsidize other people. So that, that's the second down. And then the third one is, you know, we told you, oh, you know, education is very important and, you know, you need to get this right skills and learn to code and all that good stuff. Well, that means you have six-figure in college debt. We, you know, and one can just debate the value that you got for that debt. But anyway... The value is debatable, but that is not. Forgivable, right? Exactly, which is another thing that is, to, is outrageous. Like, <laughs> why, why, is, why is that any different from any other type of debt? And it gives all the sorts of wrong incentives. But the point is, you basket is skewed towards the item which have tended, which were rents, education, or healthcare. They have tended to increase at a much faster pace than their inflation. So your actual inflation basket is a lot, lot higher than the, you know, one and a half, two percent that we've been experiencing. And it's been, it's been like that for a very, very long time, which tells me that at some point you need to invert that. And that's part of my case for inflation is that, and I don't know exactly how we're going to get there, but I'm, because I'm optimistic, I hope we're going to get there. You need this dynamic to invert. You need asset prices to go down and you need wages to go up. So I think I, I think that kind of builds the context. So the U.S. has all of these. So these are this this is like building the case for inflation. And the last thing you said was that because of this, wages need to go up, asset prices need to go down, and this is inflation, right? Yes, yes, and that that is that is the solution to this crisis. And I, I'm not clear how that would happen politically. It's hard to see it right now. But you know, if you think again about about the 70s, you know, this is what allowed the boomer generation to live, really. You know, they, they were able to buy very cheap houses. Yes, interest rates were higher, but, you know, because inflation was so high, real interest rates are actually negative. 
and wages were much higher than today. So this is why people were able to buy houses. And then when people buy houses, typically they make babies. And then that's how you get economic growth back. So this is what needs to happen for uh, the millennial Gen Z generation, where a lot of these life-defining moments have been delayed, postponed. I mean, you know, the millennials were finally getting a little bit ahead after like 10 years after the financial crisis. And then you had COVID on top of that. Most of them go back to square one. Oh, yeah. uh, I think a bit about Gen Zers who are just like graduating for, from college in an economy that's being devastated and, you know, getting the college experience of a Zoom. But eventually, if we want growth to return and asset to deliver the kind of returns that they used to, which are ultimately lead, linked to economic growth, I mean, that's what eventually this asset class return should be, is, is a, it's a claim on economic growth. You need economic growth, you need household formation, you need birth rates to increase, and for all of that, you need higher wages, lower asset prices. Inflation is the way to get there. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to link the Boomer CPI. I mean, this is what everybody is talking about and seeing, but it, it was nice to see it in a graph. For one, for one age group, prices are very much going up, and for the other age group, prices are very much going down. I think you 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 captured that very nicely. Okay, inflation clearly coming at some point due to all of these factors. The eight horsemen, bonds pretty dire return forecasts going forward, stocks, all-time high valuations. Speaking to the investors out there, I mean, how are you working with clients to structure their portfolios accordingly with, with all of this information? Well, I mean, it's very difficult, I think, for clients who are invested in, in public assets, uh, listed assets. Because like you said, I mean, the, the opportunities are, are bleak, which tells me by contrast and I'm not entirely comfortable with this, but you know, if stocks and bonds are both overvalued, probably means cash is valuable. Now, of course, if you expect inflation, you know, you don't want to be in cash for too long. But you know, it's not the worst thing to be at, especially if, you know, if I'm correct. And if, if we, we you, cash is not going to lose 50% of its value overnight, well, at least not until we get hyperinflation, which you know. Hopefully we can avoid, <laughs> but you know, I, I could very well see the stock market lose 50% of its value next year. I don't think that's going to happen to cash. I can certainly see bonds. I mean, it's going to take longer for bonds to happen, but on a real basis, it's very likely that bonds will lose, will lose 50% of their value. So cash is an obvious one. Precious metals, obviously, if you are concerned about inflation, if you are concerned about uh, financial system, I mean, that's, that's what the gold is. I mean, it's an option. Uh, to get out of the financial system if you don't trust. And then the, it, its value rise in a convex manner with, with the dysfunction in the capital markets. Uh, so obviously that's a position we've been recommending for, for a long time. We, we've seen a very nice rally in gold prices. I mean, I, I kind of like that pullback. It's probably healthy for, for gold prices. To, you know, that 1800 range is, is probably very healthy. Silver is always a lot more fun. Uh, so you can, you can play that with, with that. And then, I mean, yeah, I think you have to be active. You have to be selective. I mean, we have quant models that our clients can use for sector rotation, for country rotation. They are, I think, they will always be idiosyncratic ideas that you can pursue for, for value. I mean, I, a lot of our clients are based in, in emerging markets where, you know, asset prices are much cheaper and there is probably better expected returns going forward, even though the asset classes and the currencies have been devastated especially if you think about like inflation sensitive assets or countries like a country like Brazil, where really effectively you are short dollar long inflation. 
but it's, it's going to be a lot harder than it has been for the past decade, that is for sure. And I don't think that's something that the industry is ready for. No, I completely agree. I mean, based on these gold, precious metals, I think these, these make a ton of sense. Some of these emerging markets, perhaps. I'm curious on your thoughts on Bitcoin. In my view on Bitcoin, I'm, I'm quite bullish on it. I view it as something that you had mentioned, like opt out of the financial system, right? It gives you another option outside of this financial system that we've built. Uh, and I almost also see it as a, like a higher beta gold play, I, I, obviously extremely speculative, but it displaying these sound money characteristics, stock to flow measures that something like gold displays. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on Bitcoin. Yeah, I I tend to prefer gold just because I, I, I feel I know it better and I understand it better. I was kind of late on that Bitcoin trade. But I I mean, I, I hear a lot of very intelligent people are allocating. Again, I, I, I think it makes sense to have an allocation to it. I mean, the size of it, I think, depends on, on kind of your view of, of how things might play out. But another case I would mention, and I don't know if that plays right away or not, but I think one of the challenges in the next decade is going to replace these risk-off assets. You know, the, what I was describing earlier, the, the, there was at one point, there was a 90% negative correlation to the long-term treasuries and stocks, which was an argument to hold them despite the fact that they had no yield. Now, if my analysis is correct, this is going to go away. So I think the industry is going to start looking for assets that have uncorrelated potential with, with risk assets. And gold is actually not that great for that. I mean, over the long term, it works. But, you know, when you have a market liquidation event, typically gold, gold drops with everything, as we saw in, in February, March, or even in 08. The Japanese yen is one of them that I can think of. You really can't put, like, <laughs> a lot of your money in the Japanese yen. I mean, you're going to you know, negative rates and a, a whole lot of other issues with it. So it could be that for some other cryptocurrency that I'm not aware of, eventually fill that gap. And, and that in itself will create demand from a portfolio construction perspective. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't help to always just kind of think Bitcoin might be the MySpace of this cryptocurrency push, but you know, it's, it, it does display these characteristics and it gives that option. It's tough not to be at least a little interested in it, perhaps from the potential risk return profile that it does exhibit. Last thing I'd like to talk about is Earlier in the conversation, we talked about the 60 portfolio being kind of the gold standard or, or the, the standard allocation for most investors. If this is not working and people start waking up and people start reallocating to different asset classes, what are the implications of this? How long does this take to happen? Obviously, there's not a lot of really good choices now, but like, how do, how do you see this transition from something that's worked for so long into this brave new frontier, like what does this look like to you? Well, and that is really a hard question. And I, I mean, the further out I go, the more certain I, usually when you make a forecast, you know, the further out you go, the less you know. It's almost the opposite. Like if you ask me for well, the next 10 years, 100% certainty that it's not going to work. The next year, I have no idea. And, and part of the problem is I think because yeah, the concept of hysteresis, which is like when a problem keeps happening, it, it almost it calcifies. And, and I think uh, some of the assumptions behind the 64 portfolio have been calcified in the way the financial system works. I'm about to publish a piece on, for example, target date funds, which I think is, is extremely interesting. But basically, you know, this is at this point with the, the new rules from the, the DOL, this is where by default, you know, five to 10% of 
uh, Americans paycheck go every month. And these are funds that are basically operating on the basis of an age-adjusted 60-40 portfolio, right? I mean, if you are like, you know, in your 30s, you get, you know, 90-10, and if you're in your 50s, you get, you know, 50-50. But, you know, it, it is the same concept. And these guys, you know, you're talking about $2.3 trillion industry, mostly invested in these uh, very simple, low-cost Vanguard mutual funds in a single mutual fund. And the point is, is like, what, what these guys do is because they have target weight, they buy the asset that goes down and they sell the asset that goes up. So every time we have a correction, at some point, you see that bid come back. And because this is such a monstrous whale, I mean, think again, that trillion dollar um, Vanguard uh, S&P 500 mutual fund, you know, if the stock market is down by 20%, gotta go back, back to the normal weight. I gotta buy $100 billion of stocks by the end of the quarter to be back where I need to be. Uh, and I think that that is one of the dyna dynamic that has created um, is another fun fact that I can't wrap my head around. Four, the past four market bottoms happened on the 23rd of the month. I mean, there was December 24 in 2018, which was but because the 23rd was a Sunday. And it was on the last month of the quarter, March 23, this time. Before that, actually September 23, it looks like it happened, March 23, so forth. And I think that came from this bid from target date funds. It's the end of the quarter. We need to get back on weight. We need to buy massively the asset that went down. So that, and that process kind of perpetuates this negative correlation between stocks and bonds because they are operating on the premise that, you know, stocks and bonds are negative correlated. And that perpetuates the fact that the stock market can't drop too much because after two months, these guys need to get back on weight and you get these massive bids. So this, it's almost like a perpetual motion machine which we have created. So it could, I don't see a reason for it to break right away. I mean, people are still shifting into passive. People are still putting all their retirement money into these pricing sensitive buyers. So my best explanation, my best hypothesis that is going to keep going for a while until we have a complete systemic breakdown. And it's going to take, it's going to take something very, very, very big. And very, it is over the long term, it is unsustainable, but over the short term, it is a perpetual motion machine. And this is really the biggest conundrum that I think every investor should have in mind. Is like, can I bet against this? And the answer is probably not. But then do you think this is going to end well? And then he says, surely not. So yeah, surely it will end poorly. And so again, I think, you know, if you are thinking very long term, you know, you, you have to diversify. You have to look at other alternatives. If you are looking at the short term, Good luck. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's kind of like when the, as long as the music keeps playing, this tail is going to continue to wag the dog, right? We don't know when the heck it's going to gonna end, but it, it can keep going a lot longer than you can stay solvent to like short it or, or whatever other option you have. But the, the thing for me is like, if the 60-40 fails and we start thinking that passive funds are, are, are no good and the whole thing unravels, I mean, pensions are already underwater. I mean, we have massive, massive systemic, and, and this is where like every time I go out, it ends in pitchforks and torches, right? Which is uh, not a fun thing to think about. No, I, I think we have to find a way to default on these people. <laughs> Generational transfer is economically harmful. It's, you know, sacrificing an entire generation for the benefit of the other one with no, I mean, it's not like the, the boomers have fought a war for us or... <laughs> 
you know, I, at least I, I understand maybe for the GI, the sign generation, okay, yeah, we'll take care of you in your old days. I mean, but what did the boomers do? You know, mushrooms and, and then, <laughs> and, you know, they were not exact. And then, you know, if you want to take the green view, they kind of destroyed the planet in the process. So anyway, we have to find a way to restore this generational balance. We can't do it legally. You saw how hard it was. I think it was in Illinois, right? We were all the way to the Supreme Court and, and you could, the, I mean, all, that rule, no, like there's like the, the, the obligation, even if the, the, the pension fund was completely bust, you know, you just had to like bleed the general budget in order to keep paying these retired firefighters and, and, and city employees. So you can't really do it legally. It's, you know, social security is indexed on, on inflation. So even inflation, in a way, I mean, you need to have inflation and de-index the pension system to do. And I think that that's why it will take eventually. That is probably the least, that's why I believe in inflation, because it's the least politically painful way to organize this transfer. But it's going to be painful. I mean, for your opponent, pitch and forks. Every time you have to do transfers between groups, you know, rich versus the poor, the old versus the young, the white versus the black, whatever, you are pissing people off. And so, I, And I think that the reason we are seeing a lot of this anger right now is kind of linked, you know, people probably in their guts, they feel that this has to happen and they just don't want to be on the wrong side of that trade. I completely agree. Before we end, let's end it on some, some happy note. What gets you so enthusiastic or optimistic about the future? Because we just went down a really dark road that ends with, you know, mobs of people burning down the houses of the rich. What, what gets you most enthusiastic about, about these things? Well, I mean, many things get me enthusiastic. I think, you know, life is wonderful. I have beautiful boys. I, mean, I, I think as finance people, you know, sometimes we, we overestimate the importance of, of, of money, which is, at the end of the day, a fairly small aspect of what constitutes happiness and a good life. So, plus, plus like, there's going to be a debt jubilee that everything's written off anyway. So it's just numbers yes. on paper. <laughs> yes, right. ex- exactly. I, I think, in a way, it will be some sort of realization that, you know, when you lose it all, you realize I actually didn't need it all that much and may, maybe a return to uh, more more balanced values. But like being less philosophical, I think, you know, we kind of got to the point, I, I had a report called the stock market cult is killing the economy. And I think we got to the point where what is good for the stock market now is bad for the economy. Like what the stock market needs at this point is lower rates, which would have to be associated with depression-like conditions. What you know, the stock market needs is more money flowing into Amazon, into Google, into uh, Apple, which I would argue is probably not good from a social point of view, from the perspective of like real estate in Seattle, San Francisco. So in a way, conversely, the case that I'm making, which is horrible for the stock market and capital in general, may actually be quite good for the economy. I mean, again, I, I go back to the 70s. Yeah, 70s was a horrible time to be an investor was not a bad time to be a young person. You know, you had, you know, great music, great drugs. Uh, you know, people were able to buy houses. People were making babies. It, it, was, it was a fairly happy period looking in retrospect. Maybe that will happen. Maybe the, 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 the nuclear winter of, you know, capital markets I'm describing is actually going to be some sort of a spring for humans. I like it. The takeaway there is be grateful for what you have and, and, and yeah, we'll see where it goes. 
Vincent, I, I really, really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Where do you want to leave my listeners? Where can they find out more about you, about Stonex? Where do you want to send them? Well, uh, the research is available to, to our trading clients. We trade pretty much everything. So if you are involved in capital markets, we could be your counterparty, either on the security side, the currency, or, or the commodity side. You can also pin tweet as a link to a page where you can sign up for a free trial of my research. So we'll be very happy to give you that. And then you can also subscribe that way. You know, we certainly are willing to work on, on I mean, it's an institutional service. So it's, you know, it's expensive, but we can probably work also with smaller accounts. So yeah, please, please sign up. And uh, yeah, in general, I cannot stress how wonderful uh, Twitter is. You know, you have this little FinTweet community. I've met so many smart people and, and really, you know, I can't believe this service is free. So use it. <laughs> Well, you're the product, but yeah, kind of free. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Vincent, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. There you have it. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate your support. Show notes, transcript, links, and more can be found on our website at altassetallocation.com. If you'd be so kind, please share this with anyone you think might be interested or get some value from this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear them. Lastly, if you're on YouTube, please like the video or subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please subscribe to the podcast and or leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast and I really appreciate it. Thanks again and hope you have a fantastic day. Happy investing.